invite you to turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, it's the uh, very last section of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, if you have your Bibles. Uh, it's also provided for you there in your worship guide, your bulletin that you received when you arrived. So whichever manner by which you get there, I just encourage you to get there. We are concluding this week a brief three-week series on how uh, God's Word lays out our responsibilities together as a church. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at our responsibility and uh, how God works in our midst and just the overall worship gathering of the church and what we are doing right now. Last week, we looked at our responsibilities and how God works through the growing together of the body in relationships and in uh, close fellowship with one another. And this week, we're going to look at uh, our responsibilities together and how God grows us through our going and making the gospel of Jesus Christ known both to those around us as well as to the ends of the earth. So let's pray together and ask God's hand to be upon us as we open up his word. God, as we open your word, we pray and we ask that you would bring glory to your name and you would stir our hearts in a manner towards uh, seeing all that you would have for us in our service to you as your people. And seeing how you have enveloped us in this cosmic story of yours in making the gospel of Jesus Christ known, the resurrected Lord Jesus known to the ends of the earth. For the sake of those who have yet to hear, for the sake of our growth as your people, and ultimately for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray that your mercy would be upon us as we open your word today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This week, uh, at the Thirsty Beaver Saloon in Charlotte, North Carolina, there was a very interesting happening, but the problem is, at the time, nobody knew how interesting it was. The Rolling Stones were in town to uh, perform a concert in Charlotte, and the night before, Mick Jagger went to go have a drink at the Thirsty Beaver. The problem is, and somebody, uh, a picture made its way around social media showing this, there's a picture of Jagger just having a drink there and nobody else around him knows who it is. Uh, and so he snuck in there incognito without anyone noticing, had a nice drink and then went the next night and uh, performed in front of tens, of tens of thousands of people there in Charlotte. Now, some people took this photo uh, of, of Mick Jagger, and, and they, uh, I think they reached out to the ownership or the management of the bar and asked them, like, hey, do you know some of these people who are right beside him in this picture and have no idea who he is? And uh, yeah, so we identified a couple of them, and so they were able to uh, reach out and, and uh, interact with some of them. And my favorite was just to Mick Jagger's left was a group of about four people who had floor seats to the concert the next night, that they had forked over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars for, and they had no idea that this man in the ball cap right beside them was the one whom they had paid hundreds of dollars to go see the next day. Now, that's a funny, uh, uh, ironic story, but as I was thinking about that, and I was, I was thinking about our text today, I thought, you know, there's similarities here in how sometimes we can uh, uh, talk in a Christian nature, and we can understand ourselves and our church in a appropriate Christian nature, and, and we can, we can uh, be so close to so much of what it means to know and to follow Christ our Lord, 
And yet, if we're not careful, we can miss the purpose for which He has brought us to Himself and the means by which we grow in our relationship with Himself. And that is found in not only knowing our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, but in making the resurrected Jesus Christ known to those whom He would send us to proclaim Him to. So we're only going to be in five verses this morning, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. But my hope is that as we make our way through these verses, that we will see how the resurrection of Jesus demands that we focus our life together towards making disciples amongst both our neighbors and the nations. Let me say that again. The resurrection of Jesus demands that we focus our life together towards making disciples amongst our neighbors and to all nations. Follow along with me as I read. At the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Matthew records, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May God write the truths of his word upon our hearts this morning. We're going to break this passage down in two ways as we see our responsibility together. First, we're going to see the resurrected Jesus, and then we're going to see how the resurrected Jesus gives us responsibility as a church. You could say it quite simply, the resurrection and then our responsibility. So first, in verses 16 and 17, we record... Matthew records to us, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. That's verse 16. So contextually, what we have to understand in the Gospel of Matthew, everything unfolding, Jesus has just been resurrected from the dead. So Jesus had been walking and teaching and living amongst his disciples now for about three years, and uh, he had been crucified at the hands of both those who uh, would uh, crucify him as a blasphemer against uh, their their Judaism, but also under the hands of the Roman authorities who fulfilled uh, their their execution uh, uh, responsibilities and obligations. But Jesus was not, uh, though he was destroyed and he died on the cross, three days later he was resurrected by the power of God, bringing new life to him, and he walked out of that tomb. So now we're on this side of the resurrection, Jesus having been victorious over death, and he's starting to um, appear to a, a, a number of people. And in one instance, he appears to uh, a couple of folks and he tells them, hey, tell the disciples to meet me on this mountain in Galilee. And so he had been around Jerusalem where he was crucified. And if you're familiar with the geography of um, Israel at the time and today, um, Galilee is a region uh, a couple hours north by car, uh, I think about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. And so this was not like if you're in Situate, say, hey, meet me in Cohasset. And we'll be there. 
It, it, this was a long journey uh, for people who didn't have the modes of transportation that we enjoy today. And so what is likely the case as to why Jesus told them to meet him in Galilee is that um, throughout the Bible, as, as you remember Joan read from the book of Isaiah earlier, and she uh, read how this uh, picture of God redeeming his people from all nations is actually a thread that we, weaves throughout the, whole, the totality of the Bible, is that um, the mountain in Galilee is often referred to as or thought of as a... Uh, as, as a um, being connected with Gentiles, being connected with people outside of the people of Israel. And so there's a symbolism here both in the, in the Galilee and in the mountain. And so in the mountain, it's understood as Jesus saying, okay, now this message of who I am and of God's saving work for all people, now it's going to go out beyond just the people of Israel, now to all nations. And the mountain aspect is also quite fascinating because what you see sometimes in the Bible is, and I want you to grasp hold of this, is, is that sometimes in the Bible, it appears as if it's just kind of a, a blank, grassy field. But if you dig down, if you, if you, if you give the effort to dive down and to, to dig deeply, you find rich diamonds of God's glory revealed in his word. And one of those such things we see in Matthew is an overall theme of mountains as it relates to the overall story of Matthew. And so here's what I think is happening in Matthew. Um, if you remember back into the Old Testament, you remember Jesus, gave, or not Jesus, God gave uh, uh, the uh, Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, and so he gave them from Mount Sinai, and Moses went up the mountain and was given Ten Commandments and given the law, and then he came down the mountain, and there's this mountain of God where, where the people of, Israel, people of Israel would hear from God, and his word would come down to them, and his instructions for them, that would be where they would be. And yet what we see in the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew, which was written by this guy Matthew to a Jewish audience to help them understand how Jesus was the Messiah, how Jesus was the one that the Old Testament anticipated. So Matthew writing has a number of instances that show the glory and the beauty and the wonder of Jesus, and a lot of them are tied to mountains, almost revealing, or not almost, but actually truly revealing the glory of Jesus as God who reigns over his people in the flesh. That's why in Matthew you have the Sermon on the Mount. That's why in Matthew you have the transfiguration where uh, Jesus uh, takes a couple of disciples up with him on the mountain and, and he is transfigured before them and the glory of God is revealed in him. And so what you see here in Matthew 28 in all of this context is Jesus asserting his divinity and Jesus giving instructions to his disciples uh, with the same authority as if he is God himself because he is. And giving this instruction to his disciples that reverberate, reverberates through their lives and reverberates through us and throughout all of history as he commissions his church to go make disciples of all nations. Now you might say, okay, what is a disciple or how does that all tie together? We'll get to that in just a moment. But right now we, we want to understand the resurrection of Jesus and what it reveals about Jesus as God who died, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. He died, he's resurrected, and now he is the one who is victorious over death. And now the disciples are having to come to grips with that. That's something we have to come to grips with as well. You see in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, when I first was studying this, as I was preparing for this sermon, I thought to myself, okay, you've got a crowd of people, and you've, you've got some who worship and some who doubt, and that's naturally understandable if you've got a guy who claims to be resurrected and 
or people or others saying are resurrected. Okay, you might believe that, but I don't know. I'm kind of more skeptical about that. But actually, what this reveals is not that you had a large crowd of people, but you had a number of 11 disciples. It wasn't 12 because, remember, uh, Judas, who was one of the disciples, had betrayed Jesus and was no longer with them. So you've got 11 disciples, but I think what is happening here is these guys who had followed Jesus, who had seen him uh, crucified, who had heard that he was resurrected, wanted to believe that he was resurrected, but they're kind of like you and me, and you probably think, okay, 10 out of 10 people don't come back from the dead. When they die, they're dead. It doesn't happen. And so what I think you see happening here is these disciples really wrestling with whether or not the truth of the truth of the fact that this guy standing before them has truly defeated death and is victorious over the claims of death and over the grip of death and also wrestling with undoubtedly what does that mean for me and is he who he says he is and so that might be where you find yourself today where christianity might seem palatable to you or maybe the claims of christianity maybe on an ethical level seem understandable like like a lot of Jesus's teachings in the gospels yeah if we all follow Jesus's teachings of caring for the poor and caring for the oppressed and the downtrodden and uh, uh, not acting in violence but acting in love and peace with one another yeah I think our world would be a better place maybe you go along with that but then you say okay these claims of divinity about Jesus these claims of resurrection from the dead I'm not so sure about that let's have Jesus be the good teacher but I'm not sure about this other stuff well, what Jesus shows us here is that we can't detach, we can't divorce the two. We can't divorce the teachings and, the, and who the man is from the God and what he reveals about himself and what that means for us. But also I think there's something else that we see here, whether you're on the fence about Christianity or whether you're, as I am, or any of us who are Christians, there are times by which where our faith feels really strong. and like, yeah, I can, I, 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 I feel resolved in my faith i feel as if yeah i can trust god and whatever the world may throw at me i got it but then there might be other times where you feel like i I feel like i'm getting run over daily and my faith in following jesus christ is really difficult maybe it's because you have family members in your own home who object to your faith or who who even mock and ridicule your faith or maybe it's just because like all of us as it should be the case in many ways the, the very nature, the very reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is both a glorious yet also a painful thing. Here's what I mean by that. It's glorious in the sense that Jesus Christ, through those who have come to faith in him, he is in this process where he has begun, uh, 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 inter- uh, uh, foundationally, he has given those of us who are Christians in Christ, he has given us brand new life. We have what it, the Bible presents as a new heart where we, have what, we were once spiritually dead, but we have now been made spiritually alive. Maybe the Bible and Jesus and God and things like that were once boring, but now there's something gripping, something compelling, something fascinating about those. And maybe where, where once we didn't understand how they're related to our world, now we don't understand our world apart from the claims of the Bible and the claims of Christ. And yet that part of growth as a follower of Christ is painful. What Christ in his word does is he reveals things about us in which we need to grow out of and he is in this continued work of sanctifying us of growing us more and more from the person we once were into the person that he is making us to be and so maybe in those instances or maybe just because of objection to the faith that you've endured you're the kind of person where the resurrection of jesus 
It just seems difficult. Maybe even you doubt sometimes because you struggle in your own life with what it means to follow Christ. I found great assurance in this, great comfort in this, because what I think we see here in verses 16 and 17 is that the very disciples that Jesus commissions out to go make disciples of all nations and the ones to whom that he gives this, this responsibility to, and in some ways the ones to whom... Uh, 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 whether or not this message of Christ and his resurrection will go forward, the ones in whom this message rests on their shoulders, are people like you and me. They're people like you and me, where maybe one day they're worshiping, the next day they're doubting. And yet, these are the ones that Christ uses. And so perhaps you feel like, oh man, I don't know about this responsibility I have to tell others about Jesus. I don't know about this responsibility I have uh, uh, in growing in my faith in Christ because I, 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 I just struggle with the most very basic elements of what it means to be a follower of Christ. I, I, I feel like that's for the A team, that's for the varsity, and we're kind of the B team, the junior varsity. That's for the people that, that have been Christians for many years, and I've only been Christian for a few minutes, and all of these things and these objections that might arise in our hearts. And Jesus says to them and says to you and to me, and what his word reveals is that there is no A team, B team, there's no varsity, junior varsity, All of us, whether we worship, whether we doubt, all of us as disciples of Christ share in this responsibility. But here's something that we have to understand about our our, um, hope in the midst of this responsibility. You have the resurrection of Jesus in verses 16 and 17, but then you have in verses 18 through 20, you see the responsibility that he gives to the church. But I want you to see in verse 18 how this responsibility is given to us in a manner in which... It is a responsibility that is sure. It is a responsibility that is certain. It is a responsibility whereby even he guarantees our success in this work that we have of making Christ known to those around us. It's bookended, verse 18, by the promise that he has all authority. And then in verse 20, by the promise that he is always with us. So Jesus tells his disciples in verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I don't know about you, but I am very grateful that as Jesus gives this commission to his disciples, go make disciples, and we'll get into what all that means. But he starts it out with, hey, I have all authority. I have all authority. They killed me, and here I am standing before you. No matter what may come, follower of Christ, as you strive to live a life of obedience to me and sharing the hope of the resurrected Jesus Christ with those around you, No matter what may come, I, Jesus Christ, have all authority. It is good for us to hear that. It is good to hear that. One commentator I read as as I was studying in preparation for this message said, we should all remember even the little truths that a child sings. When that child sings, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And so let me ask you, Jesus claims that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, but what about in our lives, in our hearts, 
in our prayers? Do our lives, do the, do the meditations of our hearts reveal whether we believe that Jesus has all authority or whether we disbelieve that Jesus has all authority? May I encourage you, if you struggle with anxiety or fear about what tomorrow may hold, that Christ beckons you to come to him, even in the midst of your doubt, and know that he has all authority. May I encourage you that if you deal with pride, and you feel this great sense of self-assurance and this swagger that, that guides your steps day by day, may I warn you that Christ is the one who has all authority. Christians ought to, be the, ought to be the most confident yet humble people that this world knows. Not confident in a prideful manner, but confident in the fact that the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ has all authority over us. Therefore, we can entirely submit our lives to Him, no matter what He calls us to do. And yet humble in knowing that the risen Jesus Christ is resurrected and that He is the one who has all authority. Therefore, we do not have the authority. We are but servants of His, gladly commissioned, by the resurrected Jesus to go and tell others about his victory over death and what it means for them. Now let me pause here. Because as I say, go and tell others about the resurrected Jesus and what it means for them. This is what the emphasis, this is what the importance is here. The message of Christianity is one in which there is a solution for the greatest problems, the greatest evils, the greatest, uh, the greatest trials that this world knows. And it is a solution that is grounded in the very work of God in Christ. It is a solution whereby God in Christ is in this work of redeeming, of bringing the world from, from, from its deadness in sin and its deadness in rejection against Him and in its disarray in how it operates in this world. He is in this process of redeeming it and bringing it to new life through the work that He has done. You could look back to Genesis 1 and you could see how God created the earth and created all that inhabits it in this uh, first six days and then he rested on the seventh day. But then you would look to Genesis 3 and you'd see how, how Adam and Eve and their rebellion and their sin against God brought chaos and dis, disunity and disarray and destruction to the world as if they were introducing a virus into a previously healthy body. And yet, God, beginning in Genesis 3, he resolved that that would not be the final word. And he resolved that he would go to whatever lengths it took to accomplish his work of redeeming this world for himself, not just for his glory, ultimately for his glory, but also for our good. And he has accomplished that through not, say, not looking down on the world and saying, okay, I'm going to move it all around like a puppet master and I'm going to try to fix everything, but actually through his work in sending God the Father sent God the Son in this covenant of redemption whereby the Son willingly was sent in order that He might come and that He might live a perfect life and in order that He might die for our sins and He might be resurrected, that we might come to Him through faith and find in Him new life. And so those of us who are Christians, we're Christians on this side of the resurrection. May we be a taste of the resurrection and the hope of glory to those around us who are still ensnared in the death of their own sins and in their rebellion against God. And so Christ tells us, go therefore. Now sometimes you, people read this and sometimes in verse 19 where it says, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
and we read this, and there's a danger whereby we might think this as the church. Okay, this means that I have to go and, 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 and um, share the hope of Jesus and the hope of the resurrection with, with in people in Mongolia and in the Maldives and Macedonia, and uh, I'm struggling with more countries that start with M, but you get the idea. And, and so obedience to Jesus only is found if I go. Now, there's a responsibility here that we see in, in the all nations part, but it's better understood here, uh, verse 19, that this, this is implied as you go about your life, make disciples. And so we have this earnest, serious responsibility to go to all nations, and we'll get to this in just a moment. But we also cannot get out of this responsibility just where we find ourselves here today. In Situate, Massachusetts, on October 3rd, 2021, in the middle of a pandemic, and in the middle of whatever circumstances you find yourself in Christian, we have a responsibility to make disciples. And now we can't force disciples. We can't coerce disciples. We can't twist arms. We certainly can't, can't um, force this through. Uh, you, you might think of, as you, as you hear th- this talk about missionaries and you hear this talk about the responsibility of the church in proclaiming Christ, you might think, okay, okay, this is where like the Crusades came in and this is where where a lot of like forced coercions by the, and colonization and things like that by, by, by force of violence and all of these things, this is what they're getting at. And this is not where we're getting at. Though there have been times in the past where people in the name of Christ and in the name of Christianity have, uh, have, have gone to other parts of the world in shameful, even sinful means, what we see here and what we see modeled in the pattern of the life of Christ is a manner by which the people of Christ go to a world that does not know Christ with humble, sacrificial hearts of attitudes of love, even willing to give their lives that others might come to know Christ. And so, we see, as we go, verse 19, we have a responsibility to make disciples. And so let me ask you, us as a church body right here today, Situate, Massachusetts, October 3rd, 2021, how do I make disciples today? You might think, okay, Stephen, I've got a lot stacked against me here. I'm kind of new to the faith. I've got, uh, you know, the, our, our, our world, our culture, Christianity is not as accepted, is not as normal as it was a few decades ago. It's even on the outs. There's a lot of people who seem to make a lot of sense who think that Christianity is more responsible for ills or problems in our world today than it is for solutions and health. How do I do this? What do I, what do I make of this? Well, first we remember that Jesus Christ has all authority. And then I encourage you that the best way that people will find out that Christianity, that that will maybe have some of their uh, preconceived notions of Christianity uh, uh, taken down and replaced by a, a perspective towards Christianity that is different than what they know, is by meeting Christians. And by finding a love and a joy and a peace and a gentleness and a kindness and a, and a, and a, uh, self-control and a, and a overall spirit of, of, of sacrificial care for them through you. So what are the intentional rhythms? What are the rhythms of your life? Whether it be with co-workers, whether it be with neighbors, whether it be with people in your own home, who are the non-Christians that God has brought into your sphere of life? We all have them. Who are they? And may you and I be encouraged to to be moved to live in a, way, in a manner towards them where we live on this side of the resurrection and not on the other side of the resurrection. Here's what I mean. 
I said earlier that we as Christians ought to be the most hopeful people that this world knows. Now, hope is the kind of thing that you can't like, 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 like you can't tell your child on the way out the door, okay, you be hopeful today, and, and, and like, like it, you can't change their attitude. Hope is something that is born within our hearts when we grasp the truth. Christian, have you realized that today you are one day closer to heaven than you were yesterday? And you are one week closer than you were last week. Christian, brother or sister in the faith, who maybe you're a little further down the road than some of us, maybe you're 70, 80, even 90 years down the road, you realize that you are a lot closer to eternity and to the joy of the resurrection than you once were. I pray that, though that's an, kind of an uncomfortable, awkward subject, because death is something that is weird, and, 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 it, and it, it, it symbolizes the pain and the effect of sin in our world, and it's not something we celebrate, but for the Christian, we, we know that it is something that is not final. For the Christian, we know that death is simply the door by which we enter into the presence of our God and our Savior, and, and we enjoy His presence for all of eternity. And so may all of us have a perspective whereby the resurrection and its reality and the hope of the resurrection for us makes us a hopeful people where we know we are one day closer to heaven than we were yesterday. And more than that, no matter what problems may come our way. And I say this with a sense of, I, I want to say this with a sense of, of awareness of the fact that some of us, some in our church family, you are facing devastatingly terrible problems in your life right now. Problems that are very challenging, that are very trying, that make getting out of the bed in the morning very difficult, and, and, and things that agonize your heart, things that bring great sorrow to you, and you feel as if you're, is it Charlie Brown where the cloud is over you, and no matter where you go, you can't get, get out from under that dark cloud. May the hope of the fact that the greatest challenge you will ever face dear christian and that being the challenge of death the hope of the fact that that has been defeated may that give you just a teeny bit of confidence in the fact that you can trust your lord jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth and now this idea of being a disciple throughout the gospel of matthew a disciple is both a learner and a follower. As one commentator put it, a disciple takes Jesus as his teacher and learns from him. And a disciple is someone who also follows Jesus. Is that another way? You could say a disciple is not someone who consents to the claims of Christianity. A disciple is someone who commits to being made new by Christ. So this idea of being a disciple, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Okay, you've got, you had 12 disciples throughout the Gospels, and you had the stuff with Judas, and now you've got 11 here, and then you'll have another 12th one brought about uh, soon in, in the Acts. And, and okay, what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, I, I would say it best like this. It is someone whose heart and their mind are, are, are united together in their desire and their commitment to follow Jesus, no matter what may come. Their heart and their mind. So here's what I mean by that. Their heart is one in which they see in, in a very real sense, uh, in, 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 in their own deep, most profound sense of their soul, they know and they believe as revealed in Scripture that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died on the cross for your sins, that He was raised from the dead, and that He uh, invites you to follow Him, and that in Him is a life that is, that is new and that is 
uh, uh, nourished by him in his grace every day, and he has promised to keep you, and nothing can take you out of the palm of his hand. Nothing can separate, separate you from his love. And so it is, a, it is a manner by which you say, okay, I see this guy who is resurrected, and I don't know where all he is going to take me, but I'm going to follow him. But then it's also one whereby, that's your heart, where, where your mind is one in which you say, okay, I know that one of the means by which he is going to lead me as his follower is by growing me through his word and setting a course for my life through his word and, and, and continually changing and shaping me as a disciple, as a follower of his by his word, whereby um, he is going to turn me into someone that I'm not yet, but uh, he is making me into by seeing and savoring Jesus Christ as revealed in his word and allowing him to be that good surgeon who's doing a gracious surgery upon my soul and upon my heart that I might grow in the fruit of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You know, this idea of being a disciple of Jesus and particularly how it relates to the resurrection, this is something that was important in my own life as uh, my own development in faith. Uh, when I went to college, I was already a Christian, but I, I, I kind of reached a, a, a crisis of belief you might have, which is not uncommon in a collegiate kind of setting. And, and I, I basically had to reach the point where I had to recognize, okay, do I believe this Christianity thing or do I not? Kind of like it's easy to be a Christian in in a home where I was raised in a raised in a Christian home, and a number of my friends were Christian. My, I had good friends in youth group that were Christians and all that. But when I went to college, a lot of that was taken away, and it's like, okay, do I believe this? And where I continually, I I, I looked at you know scientific evidence, philosophical evidence, things relating to like creation, things relating to all sorts of. Uh, 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 possible objections to uh, the Christian faith or how it might be revealed to be false and all that. And the thing that I continued to come back to that I said, okay, here's, here's the thing that I cannot shake is if this guy really walked out of that tomb, then that, th th then that is something of significance that I cannot move past. If he was truly dead and he truly walked out of that tomb and was resurrected, then I can't shake that. And so it was the resurrection that became the very linchpin of my faith and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that might be the boat that you were in. You say, there's a lot of questions I have about Christianity, and I don't understand them, but if this guy was truly resurrected, then I'm going to trust him to start to reveal the answers to those questions and start to set a course for my life as a follower of his, knowing that the resurrected Jesus wants to resurrect my heart and set me in a new direction in my life. And maybe that's the invitation you need to hear today. You're kind of tired of the direction. You're kind of tired of the state of your own heart. You're kind of tired of the, the fights, the arguments, the disagreements, the pain, the sorrows, the, the hardships, and you feel as if life in the world doesn't quite make sense, and you hear the resurrected Jesus offering to you today to come to him and find new life and to know that in him you will find a direction and a course for your life that will not always be easy, but you will find in him a direction and a course that is grounded in new life, new birth, and the hope of heaven and the hope of, of all that he is making you into. And we'll find that that resurrection and, and that life in Christ tastes far sweeter than the life that you have here apart from Christ. So if that's the case, I'd love to speak with you. Maybe even grab me after our service today. Or you see my email on our bulletin, feel free to shoot me an email. I'd love to speak with you. I'd love to help point you to some resources. Maybe if you're like, okay, I got questions. I'm not quite there yet, but... 
yeah, I, I'd like to learn more about the historicity and whether or not it's truly real that Jesus was resurrected. I'd love to help you with that. So back to our responsibility as a church. Jesus says, go therefore make disciples of all nations. Now, this all nations key, this all nations part, his instruction here is for them because the message by which and the means by which the one true God has created his people and the means by which he has brought them to new life through trusting in him and through seeing and savoring and following the resurrected Jesus, this is a message that God desires to get out to the ends of the earth that, 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 that all nations, all peoples might come to faith in him. And so this is a message that, that transcends uh, racial lines. It is a message that transcends borders. It is a message that transcends ethnicities. It is a message that all peoples around the earth may, must hear because A of all, first of all, God in his glory, God who is the one true creator of all peoples, of all creation, of all of our world, he is the one who is worthy of the praise of all nations. And yet he also diagnoses and recognizes that this need, the need of resurrection, the need of victory over death, the victory over sin, the need of new life, whereby the old person dies, the, the new one is made spiritually new, and they have come to faith in him, and they have a hope that this world cannot take, and they have a life that is grounded in Christ. This is a need that all peoples on the face of the earth have. And so he commissions us to make disciples, not only amongst our neighbors, but amongst all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here's a picture of the triune God whom we are submitted under as our rule and our authority, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and baptizing them. And in, in, this, is, this is actually a picture of some of the work of the church and how church planting is so critical to the mission and the work of the church where it's proclaiming the, resu the resurrected Christ. It is, it is teaching people. It is bringing them into faith. It is baptizing them as a symbol of that faith, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in this newness of life. And it is baptizing them and teaching them to observe, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so it is this means whereby Christ has equipped his church for the work of propagating his gospel that others might be brought from death to life in him. And so, we as a church, this is why praying for the nations is critical aspect of our life together as a church. It's why we regularly pray for people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't pray for them with some kind of Western superiority as if we're wealthy or smarter, uh, have it all figured out. No, we pray for them as desperate beggars who desire others who are spiritually desperate to find the bread that we have found. And it is why we commission missionaries out to go and share the hope of the gospel. Once again, not in a message of coercion or arm twisting or manipulation or threats but in a message of love being willing to be one who is willing to sacrifice your life even to surrender your your future your hopes your career your dreams your aspirations knowing that the resurrected jesus christ is far greater and that he is worthy of the full devotion of your life and it is one that whether we go to the nations or whether we are right here that we all have a responsibility of fulfilling and all have a responsibility of carrying out and so may we as a church be faithful in our missions endeavors. Maybe it's sending missionaries, whether it be financially supporting missionaries, whether it be faithfully praying for missionaries. And may I urge you even, if you are part of our church family and, and uh, 
or connected with us and you're, you're a follower of Christ, yet you haven't been baptized yet, may I encourage you to hear the exhortation in the Great Commission and to follow Christ in baptism, not as a means of becoming a Christian, but as a means of obedience to the Christ who has been resurrected. In one sense, the Great Commission helps us to better understand our life together as a church. It certainly helps us to understand our responsibilities in making Christ known where he is not yet known. But the Great Commission is also our means of hope right here. Because the Great Commission is a promise to us whom the gospel has come to that Christ will continue to be with us because he has all authority. And as verse 20 says, at the end of verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The risen Lord Jesus, all authority and with you always. And no matter what you might have carried in with you here today, no matter what fears you might have about what tomorrow holds, no matter what worries you might have as, as the only Christian in your sphere, in your realm of the world, and in your relationships that you hold dear, the Lord Jesus Christ is with you always. And He is the one who has all authority. And He is the one who has shown His love for us and His resolve to guard and to keep and to protect and preserve us even to the point of giving his life. And so, brothers and sisters, church family, we don't want to miss the boat. We don't want to miss the power of Christ at work amongst his people. Do we want to know the authority of Jesus? Do we want to know the presence of Jesus? Do we want to know the, the, the power that he has and the manner by which he is always with his church? we want to see that vibrantly on display, then let's work to share the hope of Christ with those around us. You might say, okay, I don't even know how to share the hope of Christ with those around me. You know, there's one very simple way to begin a conversation with somebody around you who perhaps maybe somebody's sharing with you a hard time they're going through, a difficulty in their own life and they're not a Christian and, and, and you might share with them, you know, at church this week, I was reminded from the Bible of how Jesus has all authority over all things. And it sounds like you're going through a hard time right now. I'll, I'll pray that God will work in that. People rarely are upset that, that Christians offer to pray for them. That gives you an opportunity to introduce them to your Lord Jesus who has all authority. And then you can follow up a week or two later and say, Hey, how's it going? That issue you were walking through. I've been praying for you. Just one way to begin those conversations. But may we also be resolved to make this Christ known and to pursue making this Christ known to all nations because he is worthy of their praise and because their need for him is great. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are the one who is victorious over death. The resurrection of Jesus demands that we focus our life together towards making disciples of this one who is victorious over death. So God, would you give us faithfulness and resolve towards lifting high the name of Christ, towards even sending out missionaries from our midst, and towards supporting and engaging with those who are making Christ known to the four corners of the world, and even to those who are right in our neighborhoods. We ask your hand to be upon us. We ask your power to be with us. We ask that you would cause us as a people to be grounded and hopeful and resolute 
in the confidence that Jesus is resurrected, that he has all authority, and that he is with his people always. May we never waver from this hope, O oh God. We pray this all in the name of Christ. We don't pray this in the name of a, 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 a dead teacher. We pray this in the name of Christ, a risen Lord, who is with his people. So we know you hear our prayers, and we know you are with us in our need, and we know you are our strength for all that you call us to do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.